Hey everyone, welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert and I am your host once again. And as promised, this is part three of the uh, risk panel discussion. And now we've added in Greg and I'm telling you, we had a blast. This was a really great discussion and I've really appreciated all of your feedback and the great response that this has been getting. It's been so much fun for us. And I wanted to publicly thank the three gentlemen for their time in being a part of this first discussion. So thank you, Henry, Travis, and Greg for being a part of this. And without further ado, let's get on to the last part of this discussion. This podcast was brought to you in part by CalLab Solutions, the creators of Metrology.net. Are you tired of losing your calibration data because something crashed? With Metrology.net, every test point is saved. That's just one of the many ways we are building better software. To find out more, visit us online at Metrology.net. Welcome everybody to round two of our panel discussion on risk, uncertainty, and known issues in the field. Uh, today we're welcoming Greg Sinker in for uh, providing us with a high-level insight on all the the math behind everything. And and uh, Greg, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, many people in the industry are going to know you. Uh, you're currently at IndieSoft, but did you want to give yourself a yeah. little bit of an intro? Sure. I wrote, a, I wrote a small intro this morning. I figured this was going to uh, come to this. So um, I got involved in the metrology uh, field, actually started 1982. I was working at a grocery store in West Virginia, Kroger's, and they kept laying people off. And I kept noticing that I was getting closer and closer to the list of folks getting laid off. And I kind of said out loud, I'm like, man, if I get laid off, I'm out of here. And one of my coworkers said, well, what do you mean you're out of here? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know, but if I get laid off, I'm out of here. Next week I got laid off, didn't give it a second thought, joined the Marine Corps. Um, joined the Marine Corps, got a open avionics contract. Uh, after I completed basic training at Paris Island, I went to uh, BEE, which is basic electricity and electronics in Millington, Tennessee. From there, I went to PML school at Lowry Air Force Base. After I graduated from PML school, they sent me to um, uh, MCAS El Toro that I stayed for a couple of years until I uh, did my last tour of duty in Okinawa, Japan at Fatima Air Base. When I got out of uh, the Marine Corps, I immediately got a job with the now defunct Fort Aerospace that was in Newport Beach. Um, Fort Aerospace, for those of you that don't know, at the time was involved in aerospace. They made Sidewinder missiles. They had a... Uh, uh, a, a tankish thing called the the Sergeant York, which was a disaster. Uh, they made harm missiles and they made uh, several different types of uh, anti countermeasures, flare pods for F 18 stuff like that. Um, when I quit working for Ford because they had sold and decided to sell to Loral, which would have broken up the, and I would have been, you know, basically uh, struggling to find a job with everybody else out of work. I went to work for Southern California Edison as a metrologist. Uh, I stayed at Southern California Edison uh, for about eight years, went to work for Wave Tech in San Diego as a metrology engineer. Uh, Fluke ended up buying Wave Tech. I stayed on board with Fluke. Um, until they decided to move the facility from San Diego to Dallas, Texas. Um, after three weeks of setting up the lab in Dallas, Texas, I decided I didn't like Texas. So <laughs> I 
went back to Southern California Edison as a metrology engineer, stayed there for an additional seven or eight years. Um, there was an opportunity. I wanted to get out of metrology for a brief period of time. So I went to work for Edison uh, in their asset management and system reliability department. And what that department did is metrology on, on a big scale for the electrical grid. So what the job was, you have a bucket of money, you have reliability data, you have circuits. You figure out uh, by taking a look at the reliability data, okay, what's causing all my unplanned outages? Um, they have planned outages, they have unplanned outages. What they tried to control was the unplanned outages. So our department's job was to look at the data, figure out where they should invest in the infrastructure to keep the lights on. Um, that worked for a while, but unfortunately, I spent all my time digging in databases. I could have automated the process. Um, they didn't see the benefit of doing the automation of it. And at that time I had gotten a hmm. call from, yeah, it was, it was crazy. And, and I, could, I could tell you how that transpired too. So how, how it transpired um, was, I said, look, we're spending all of our time getting data out of this databases. Why don't we have a intranet where somebody can say, hey, I've got this circuit in this county, in this city, give me the reliability data for the last X amount of months, years, whatever, and rank them according to why did this circuit blow up? What happened? Did, you know, car hit, pulled, transformer, blow out, cable melt, et cetera. And my boss at the time said, well, if we do that, then what's the purpose of us? Because knowledge is power. And if we do that, then what use do we have? Like, well, we could do other things besides digging around in databases. So what put the icing on the cake was one of the metrics that I had a report and I had to sign for was the outage data, which is the unplanned outages. So Public Utility Commission in the state of California says that you're going to have to report to your best estimate what are your outages going to be for the next year and how long are they going to happen? So how long are they going to happen and what's the frequency of it? So you had to do some really fancy math to come up with that answer. I figured out how to get the math accurate to within 1.8% of the actual value, which is good because oh. if you if you overestimated it, you got penalized because the Public Utility Commission says you just gun decked it, you just threw a number out. Oh, if yeah. you under if you underestimate it, you get penalized because they're saying you didn't do your due diligence and you thought you were uh, better than you are. And uh, so you get penalized either way. So it really behooves you to get the right number. Well, prior to me coming on board, they had spent upwards of $300,000 on a third party to come in and do a reliability study on the aging infrastructure. And they forecasted the reliability out for 25 years. When um, I, and I didn't know much about this. So as I'm learning the system and I figured out how to do short-term forecasting, which was the next prior year, um, I figured out a way to be accurate to within 1.8%. And I was told once I reported my numbers that I can't turn these into the Public Utility Commission. And I, I asked them like, well, why not? Well, they're going the wrong way. I said, they weren't going up, they were going down. The reason that the uh, 
the unreliability was going down was because we were being proactive in replacing aging infrastructure. It just makes sense, right? I mean, if you're replacing stuff that's likely to fail and mm-hmm. you're taking action on it, then of course your reliability is going to go up and your unplanned outages are going to go down. Sure. And he says, no, the, the numbers have to go in the other direction. And I said, are you suggesting that I falsify this? He goes, no, I'm just saying the numbers have to go in the other direction. So that's when I happen to get a call from SpaceX and I decided I'm going to go to SpaceX. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. That sounds sketchy. <laughs> right. So it was my name on the report. So I wasn't, I wasn't exactly. about to do that. Um, so I went to work for SpaceX and I worked there for exactly a year and a day. Um, that was probably um, a, the most stressful job that I've ever had, not in terms of, just the hours that I put in, but in the terms of, unfortunately, that at the time SpaceX was was flying rockets at the same time they were building them, if that makes sense. So safety, reliability, being airing on the side of caution wasn't a concern for them. It was no, we're building this, we're building this rocket, and we're doing it right now, and we're going to figure out the process as we're building it. Um, so that, that was a bit stressful for me. And after, after a year of that, I'm like, you know, I need, I need to chill out uh, a little bit. And I went to work for a company called American Technical Services in Norco, uh, which I got to work with Dr. Jackson at the Naval Surface Warfare Center. Um, I stayed there until I got a, uh, this is, this is funny how this works out. It's such a small, small world. So my sponsor, which was the Marine Corps working for the Naval Surface Warfare Center, gave me a task. And my task was to give them an uncertainty analysis on and how much is it going to cost to be able to calibrate 5730s at all levels of the fleet. I'm like, well, first off, that's going to be really expensive because you're going to have to buy standards for all these all these depots and you're going to have to calibrate all these standards at all these depots and you're going to have to do all the statistics this is going to get really expensive you might want to just have uh, an east coast and a west coast and and have the equipment there and send the send these out well anyway i did the analysis for them and they had contracted unbeknownst to me to north of grumman to build them the software to be able to do this process automated i get a phone call from north of grumman saying, hey, you know, I've got this um, um, uncertainty analysis reliability study that came across my desk, got your name written all over it. Pretty impressive work. How would you like a job? So that's how I ended up working for Northrop Grumman is because my sponsors sent the uh, error analysis to them. They thought that I would be a good addition to the company. And I, you know, came out there. Um, And then being at Northrop Grumman, um, they're not exactly eager to get things done in a timely fashion. They're very, um, they're very slow motion. And I happened to get a phone call from IndieSoft and Rhett Price explained to me what their vision was, where they were going with the future. I could see where SureCal was kind of heading. And I really liked Rhett's vision for where he was going with the future. So I, uh, I'm now an IndieSoft employee and we're gonna be launching a new product called calibrations.com. I'm sure I'll be talking more about that in the future, but that's Great. that's my history. Yeah, feel free to come on here and talk about it when you guys are getting close. That'd be good. Okay. I, okay. I have a nice summary for the listeners here, Ryan. Uh, Greg is a pragmatist, good at math, and he may have invented the internet. 
Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good summary. Somebody, yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, and Greg, people have also said uh, you're really good at breaking down complex things into a very manageable, easily digestible thing. So we're really going to put you into the test here today. All right, I'll, I'll try my best. You know, one of, one of my favorite quotes from from Albert Einstein, truly is if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And, and that, that, that's really what it boils down to. Um, if you've got to have PowerPoint decks and charts and papers and, you know, uh, resident experts to try to decipher what you're saying, you don't know the subject matter you're well enough yet. But yeah, I agree. And then also uh, everyone heard Henry, of course, is back. Welcome back, Henry. Henry Zumbrun from Morehouse. Here. MH Force, and then of course Travis Gossman. I won't call you Grossman again. I I still can't believe that. I swear to you, I I'm not even joking. It really disturbed me because I saw an R in there. I don't know how. No, nope. happens but, all the time. Great to be back, Travis. Actually, sharing the the microphone here with these two gentlemen. Yeah, it's great to have you guys. Um, so Greg caught up with us. He listened to our last broadcast, and and uh, we're actually releasing those. Um, this one with that one back to back here after we're done with this. So in the following weeks. Um, so everyone will be caught up to date that is listening to this. But Greg is now caught up with us. Um, I, I've i had a few weeks to digest a lot of this. I've been out to visit Henry, which was a, a great time out there in Pennsylvania. And I really, I think that this, this issue, and we're talking about having problems with risk, having problems with uncertainties, and there being disparities across the field. It seems like there's issues on manufacturer side, which Henry brings up. There's issues inside of independent Cal Labs. They're uh, either adding extra calculations in there to their uncertainties, or they're um, doing... Um, uh, what was the other version? The um, creative math. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Creative math. Thank you. I got, <laughs> I got had a brain fart there. So I, I really want to break this down now, now that I'm coming around to it, because I feel like I'm probably more on the side of some of the average listeners, as far as you guys being much more up to date and on top of this issue in the field. So I think it's good now in the second one, having Greg come in, Greg, we can kind of get your perspective um, on this issue that you've seen out there, and then we can kind of move from that into some of the the possible ways that we can uh, fix this, train this out of the industry, what needs to be done, and then if we have time, we can we can uh, push a little bit further into the uncertainty matters. Does that sound good to you guys? Sounds great. Yep. So what are you seeing you've you've heard the issues that that uh, myself henry and travis brought up greg what what are some ones that you are seeing out there especially with your i mean you're you're working with customers all the time um, what are some of the issues that you're seeing so uh, a lot of the issues that i see um are are, are a couple of fold first off is some of the customers just don't know. They don't understand measurement uncertainty. They don't understand um, test uncertainty ratios. And interestingly enough, I've had a couple of customers when I've gone to their site, they're building a product and they're testing that product with instruments that are less accurate than the product that they're building. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I see that, I'm, I'm really shocked by that. And I explain to them why you can't do that, why you have a risk and what that risk is in terms of, and, and what I do is, is I try to be creative to this because I can talk numbers to, you know, metrology geeks all day long, but at the end of the day, what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to sell it to managers so they make a better product, so they have better processes. So to get their attention, what I always focus on is I focus on the risk side of it. I always focus on, this is your scrap rate. So if you're making bad measurements, then that means X amount of percent of this is going to be scrapped because you don't have the resolution to make a determination of whether it's good or, or bad or indifferent. So you're focusing on the producer risk or the company risk then, is that right, Greg? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's exactly what I, what I focus on because um, there's, there's long-term um, liabilities in the future. Let's say if they're making batteries, I mean, um, who was it? Was it Toshiba that had the batteries that were blowing up in the laptop? The um, Samsung, Note Samsung, 7. Samsung right. Note Seven. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're testing batteries like that and you don't have the proper resolution to be able to do the proper testing for it, now besides having bad product, besides having scrap, now you have litigious issues because your product burnt up on somebody's face or in the bag or you know whatever the case may be. Um, okay, now or, you switched over to consumer risk. Yep. Right. But, but they're interrelated. I mean, to minimize consumer risk, you also have to minimize producer risk. So, and the example that I showed, I was performing uncertainty training at a uh, client site and they could still couldn't grasp the idea of buying proper test equipment in their mind. Well, this test equipment is expensive. I said, okay, the test equipment is expensive. I get that, but it's a good investment. This is why it's a good investment. I said, all right, let me ask you a question. You've made, I go, how many products do you make? And they threw some big number at me. And I said, all right. I said, so six to eight months down the line, you find out that the equipment that you used is severely out of tolerance. I said, what do you do now? And they said, well, with what? I go, with the product that you've already done. They go, well, it's shipped. I go, but you don't know if it's good or not because you built it eight months ago. You don't know when this equipment went out of tolerance. He said, well, we recall it all back. I said, well, number one, that's really, really expensive uh, and it's unnecessary. I said, but, so this is kind of tying into keeping data too. I said, so if you keep data on all this stuff and you have your uncertainties and you have proper uh, TURs, this is what you can do with that. So instead of just selling them on the uncertainty, I sell them what they can do with the uncertainty. So now that they have that, I kind of do a reverse risk analysis. So everybody uses method five, method six, when they're doing calibrations up front. Well, you can also apply that at the back end. So you've already built something, it's already gone. So now you have a standard that's out of tolerance. So you take that new value that you have in your standard, you plug it into your risk equation, and then you can see, okay, I recorded, this is now what my TUR is. This is what my uncertainties now are because my standard shifted. This is the stuff that I made. Is it going to have an impact on anything that I already made and shipped? 
you could do a, a mathematical analysis and just get rid of most of that impact stuff because you no longer have to get the phone book and start sorting through it and see if it makes an impact or not because mathematically you could have the computer run the software and it gives you the answer. So I yep. sell that to manufacturers from that aspect. Ryan, that we they, pause that and they get. What method five and six is, or is that going to uh, be an assumed? Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry. So method five, Z five forty dot three method five is. Uh, let me see. I've got that spreadsheet. It's, it's when the uncertainty is being taken into account. Into so account, it's, and, it's, and and you're you're looking at the uh, the um, you're making sure that the distribution of the tails is within the limits. Method six is the TUR method, which is pretty much uh, accredited to Keysight. Um, and what was the yeah. gentleman's uh, Dobert. Dobert? Yeah, first Dobert. name. I can't think of his first Michael. name. Michael. 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 Yeah. So he he created that, which was uh, called the TUR method. Um, so method five, method six. Those those are most common. People use them because they're easy to implement. Uh, the only thing that I'll caution on method six is that it has a uh, it tends to have a higher uh, reject rate because. Um, as you get lower in TUR, it, it guard bands a little more aggressively than you know method two does. But method two is obviously a lot harder to implement. Can I we probably want to go back Greg? on that, Greg. It's method five and method six, right? Right, method five uh, and method six so, is what I'm so, talking about. So going back to that, method five takes the measurement uncertainty into account directly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, method six uses the logarithmic function uh, that's very valid. Uh, the the problem with method six is if you have a high TUR, it can push your acceptance limit beyond um, that of the tolerance. So like a really, really high TUR of greater than four and a half to one, you could have a tolerance that's plus or minus five pounds of force, and it could put it at 5.12 if you had like a 20 to one TUR. So you have to kind of manipulate the formula a little bit with uh, method six, but yeah. Right. And I've actually got that built into my algorithm um, because we give a customer choices what method they want to use. Uh, we're not dictating one over the other. Um, but yeah, I've got a limiter in there. So if it goes over, I forget what it is right now on the code. But if it goes four, six if it, or something, yeah, if it goes over, yeah, four five, I have it set to four or five. Okay. If it, if it goes over four or five, then it, it doesn't do anything. Um, the, but the only problem that I've seen with method six is what it assumes is it assumes that the um, unit under test has, I think it's 62% in the period reliability. That's, that's why it's got a steeper curve. So, mm. but, but I mean, it, it, it's, they're both perfectly valid. So for the for the for the listeners that are out there, this is ANSI Z540.3 handbook. Uh, yeah, that's the handbook. There's were there's six methods that are in the handbook that are acceptable methods for uh, calculating your your PFAs, your risk uh, to to make a acceptance uh, conformity assessment such as pass fail. And we're guard getting, banding, gentlemen. We haven't used the word guard banding yet. Guard banding, methods, yes, banding, yes, guard yes. Banding. <laughs> like the like the radio days. So guard banding came from the radio days where you know the someone would be listening to a station and they they give a little bit of a of a gap, 
you know, so the, the interference wouldn't, wouldn't cross over. And, and Greg, Greg didn't mention, but Greg's really into like the history of, you know, rock and roll amplifiers, all, all this stuff. So he probably has radio examples uh, galore, but uh, I'm glad Travis brought up guard banding because people hear about it or they hear about conformity assessment. Uh, and, and a lot of that's what's wrong with industry right now is not guard banding or conformity assessment. It's, their thought process regarding it. Like a lot of people still think, Oh, if I'm within the tolerance, I can say the instrument is good without taking the measurement uncertainty into account. There's still those labs that are making those measurements Mm -hmm. and saying, Oh, manufacturer states plus or minus, you know, 1% of full scale. As long as my measurements within that, I can tell the customer this instrument passes and send it out the door without taking into account any of the, the measurement uncertainty, which the measurement uncertainty is taken into account by these various guard banning methods that are found in the ANSI Z540.3 handbook. And, and be so, taken and, into account via guard banding. Let me just offer a yep. slight correction there. Yep. There, there's, there's, um, there's also, if, if you're accounting for your TUR, that is you're setting a minimum TUR level test uncertainty ratio, that's also accounting, taking it into account. That's taking uncertainty into account, right? If you've got that, you know, we often use the four to one magic ratio, that is taking it into account, right? And Greg, I think yeah. you were talking earlier about uh, uh, well, both you and Henry, that if you, t- if you use guard banding, you apply it all the time, regardless of your test uncertainty ratio, you can actually start to expand that tolerance uh, and I think Greg made the comment that his in in his software there's actually a threshold. Did I miss that comment? No, no, you did, you didn't miss it. It doesn't guard ban until you reach uh, a certain threshold of test uncertainty right. ratio. Yeah, right, right. And, and how by do the you way, deal with that? How do you deal with the location of the measurement there? Because that's that's the one that always gets me. Because if you are on the limit. If you're always on that tolerance limit, that's that becomes a that becomes no matter what you could have a two thousand to one uh, TUR, but if, if but if you're right on the spec limit, how do you? Deal you know, with- it is it is interesting you said that. Let me let me pull up one of these other spreadsheets so that I can uh, I can tell you that because I wanted to do that study myself because I'm like, well, how much guard banding is actually enough? I mean, when, when do you get to the point to where, um, you know, kind of enough is enough there? Let's see. Guard band, your guard band. Yeah. Yeah. There's a point where it gets, it gets kind of crazy. Um, Okay. It's not on that sheet and it's not on that sheet. When um, When did accreditation of labs begin? When, what year was the, did all of this start? I want to say 1995 because we were one of the first labs that did that um, at Edison. We were um, NavLab accredited, and the only thing we were accredited in was DC voltage and resistance. Uh, that what I know. Were you accredited to Greg? Uh, what's what standard? That? Which standard were you accredited to? Um, the. Because ISO 17025 wasn't it, it wasn't it, no it was not it was not 17025 it was it had to be Z540 um or I guide think it, got, it was guy 25 yeah I mean I can pull that up out of my mothballs but it was a very <laughs> very uh um very old one for sure yeah I know ATLA celebrated their 40th when we were in Portland which was 2019 so that puts 1979 for them accrediting some labs I don't I don't know the the history there's probably some before before then 
you know, back to automotive and some of the industries wanted wanted people. I know Newpick Nuclear's been around for a while. They were always sending teams out back in the uh, back in the '80s. So, yeah, I, that, your question's great. Great as far as uh, that goes. Uh, and someone out there that's listening probably knows all of them. Right. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> well, the the reason I brought that up is I'm curious if it it seems to me like this situation started where. Because I've been to many, many small labs or your mom and pops as people call them, but you know, the independent cow labs out there and they're really subject to whoever is there. And if they have someone there that is very well versed on uncertainties or whatever process it is, they can really turn a lab around. But if, you know, ever since they've been accredited or ever since they've been growing, they've always been trying to piecemeal things together isn't that where some of this comes from is that like Greg, you were saying they just don't understand it. Is that a lot of these labs have just gone along on their own way for so long without a unifying, um, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep using training, but like some, some type of unifying education amongst these labs and they've just kind of veered on how they calculate things or how they operate in general. Well, I, I, I don't want to um, badmouth anyone, but I think that um, certainly Henry and Travis, you could probably back me up on this because you've probably seen it yourself. I think that laboratories that don't have a metrologist or they don't have somebody that sees in the laboratory and they go for accreditation, unfortunately, they're at the mercy of whoever their assessor is. And sometimes these assessors are very particular. They want to see certain things, not necessarily that you're doing it wrong in the lab. It's they want to see certain things. So sometimes the labs in some cases get held hostage to um, another assessor's opinion on how they think things should actually be. It's not that they're wrong, but I think that sometimes there's a disconnect with the regard of you don't have a standard assessor. That's that's mm. been um, right. kind of kind of a pain in my side for many years because I've gone through a lot of audits. I'm like, man, I wish you guys were standards. I I, I would just like to have a standard assessor. Right. Right. Yeah, I'd say it's across the board, regardless of company size. Maybe it's skewed more towards the smaller ones. I don't know, but I've definitely seen issues with both large corporations uh, that we all know and can rattle off, as well as the smaller ones that maybe are only run by you know a handful of people three to five people but yeah I, I i've definitely also noticed that there's certain accreditation bodies that i can point to and say the labs that have that stamp are a little less reliable than the labs that have this mm -hmm. stamp mm -hmm. i'm not going to name names sure right <laughs> <laughs> oh and by the way henry i get I get back to your question you said where's that point of of guard banding yeah i i found the sheet that i was looking at so i had done a, a workup because i was wondering that same question myself so the guard banding in this case is where i'm calling the tail of the distribution is buttoned up against the actual um upper maximum upper limit of the spec so okay. yep. so it's like at, at what point is it good enough to where you you could just throw that out so i'm seeing at at five to one the upper upper tail of that spec is 80 percent of the tolerance of the unit under test 
and it gets to 95% at 20 to one, it gets to 98% at 51 to one, and it gets to 99% at 1,021 to one. So, I mean. So as long as you're not riding. The, 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 then, if you're not riding the spec. If you're riding the spec, you should not be able to call that unit intolerance. Right. Because, because you're, you're going to have, you're going to have a. Plague on the plate. Yep. Okay. What we're ahead, not Travis. talking about is the differentiation between global risk and uh oh, I just dropped the term particular risk, single point global. Risk. You have global global consumer, yeah, global con global, global versus it, it's the opposite of global. You can look at a compilation of test points from uh, even one instrument, if it's like a complex spectrum analyzer or a pool of instruments or the pool of stuff from your company, and, and it gets larger. And you can calculate the the PFA. Greg, was that the number that you were spitting at us? That certainly didn't sound like PFA. No, he was he not. Said, no, 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 no. He's not talking about PFA. That, that at the end of the day is the is our number, right, guys? Right. PFA. PFA is right. what we're shooting for. Right. That's the probability of false PFA. accept. Oh, probability okay. of false accept. See, Travis I didn't said. know the term. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, no, so what we're yeah. So, thanks, Travis. So, to be more clear, if you are on that spec limit and you graph whatever you graph, half of whatever you graph when you're on the spec limit is going to hang over. Right. It, it's statistics, right? Statistics, right. Right. You know, this yeah. Distribution. If you, not all of your points are going to be there, let's give a, an instrument. I'm going to say has a hundred test points. Not all 100 test points are going to fall on that limit. If you do, you, you better go out and buy a lottery ticket. It's just not <laughs> right, statistically right. possible. It's just not going to happen. Right. So this, the probability can be calculated for that instrument. Uh, and again, I might be applying it wrong, but it, you can call that the, the, global, um, the global risk. And it's for that instrument's test points, not one specific test point. Yeah, if one right. specific test point falls yep. on it, that's probably above a uh, probably above the two percent probability of false except PFA but you can calculate test point by test point the PFA right there's this big ugly um, calculation and I forget where it is it's in one of the the JCGM documents and and it's a um, it's a double integral it's yeah it's ugly. a double integral but it's a yeah. double um, um, uh, probability distribution function right. Yeah. Is it 106, that's because Travis? Two things, and that's because two things have to happen. It both has to, uh, the test point has to appear in tolerance and the actual has to lie outside, outside. of tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why they, that's why it's a double. Joint probability. Word, joint probability function. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. That's yep. the one. And you can calculate that point by point. Yeah. Very hard. Put it in software. I don't know. Oh, it's but, a piece of cake. I mean, we have it in the software. It's, you know, now it's easy, but man, back in the day, that was a, it's still a formidable equation if you try to oh, calculate it, it by hand. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So that's found in uh, JCGM 106. Yeah. There you go. So that is, the, that is the document there. Evaluation of measurement data, the role of measurement uncertainty in conformity assessment. Yeah. So mm -hmm. and that so the, is not, that is a great document, but you, you need to, if you're past be the beginner level, uh, you need some, some statistics <laughs> background to really start following this. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the elephant in the room, as it were, is for, for each individual company, for each individual industry, you have to know what your risk tolerance is, right? Correct. Again, if you're building lawnmowers and pocket watches, well, I used lawnmowers last time and Henry scolded me. Uh, <laughs> if you're building curling irons and pocket watches, your your risk level is, is, is probably pretty wide. 
right? But if you're in an right. avionics company like myself, our risk tolerance is extremely low. Yeah, you can't. So, I mean, if you're filling, but, if you're if you're filling bottles of beer and you're you're at 11.5 ounces that's still as far as i know i think that's still acceptable practice that you can get away with that right yeah. And, you're, yeah. you're not going to kill anybody by undershooting the the, the fluid in your <laughs> right. beer. it might help right. save a life actually <laughs> yeah maybe somebody doesn't get a dui because they drank right. 11 and a half <laughs> instead of 12 you know <laughs> so so knowing and this is a, a quote from dang it just dropped his name too i have it in one of my slide decks you you have to know oh it's the Scott Mims, you yep. have to know the risk level for your industry. That's like step one. Yeah. And then we can start talking measurement uncertainty and why that's important and how to account for it and what the guard banding level should be set up. But step number one is to know your risk level. Right. 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 And I think, I think uh, that's the other part that concerns me though, is that I also feel like the interaction with customers is lacking. You know, that, that discussion and Henry and I talk about this to death, you know, that interaction with the customer to determine that risk. Cause you know, at, at, at Cal lab, like I've worked at, I have hundreds of different customers in all different industries. And, you know, did we have a conversation with every single one of them about, Hey, what is your risk for this measurement? And I don't think that yeah. happens. You know, it's just like, Hey, fill out this sheet, tell us what you want for a spec. If you don't know the spec, we'll try and help you with it. And I think in, that also is part of the problem is people trying to help customers with specs, but they don't understand this stuff. You know, it's a very complex issue. And that's why I'm glad we're here talking about it on the podcast, because maybe we can get people really thinking about the end result here. And it was when Henry, when you were on your solo podcast, the second one, and we started throwing around that consumer global consumer risk. Yeah. Yep. It's never, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from young technicians saying like, I never really thought about my job in that, that aspect before, you know, cause I'm just trying to get a job done. And I think that's where, you know, you have people just trying to get the job done and the people that are trying to, that are supposed to be watching out for possibly some of these issues we're talking about, don't have the, the, the know-how or they don't have those conversations with the, with the customer, you know, that, that's a good point. And, and, and to Greg, when do you adjust the instrument, right? If you're all on that hairy edge, you, you can mm. still, still make the, you know, then we have Travis's favorite and, and Greg's and everyone binary decision rules. We have, we have that, that, that or non-binary decision yeah. rules. Well, binaries, binaries <laughs> oh. are favorite. Non-binary is <laughs> not our favorite. So, right. but, but they went her? to a non-binary that, you know, we have that jokey ad out that's that, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, Hey, maybe it's intolerance. We don't know. Maybe, yeah, we don't. It's, we don't know. maybe it's out of <laughs> tolerance. We don't know. You know, and they basically say your fail is is the tolerance plus the uncertainty. And if it's outside of that, you can say it fails because there's no right. part of your if you're in visit. The best way to say this is, you, you know, what a ghost look like. Everybody knows what a ghost look like. But if they, a normal distribution kind of follows what, you know, uh, you know, I've seen that what a ghost looks like. The, I don't mm -hmm. know. Maybe you guys have a better way to describe it. But if all of that, if all of your data clumpings is outside of your line, they're saying that that non-binary, you can call it a fail. Every part of that curve is out. But if a little bit of that curve still in, you can say, eh, it may be out of tolerance. Right. We don't know. It probably is because a lot of it's out or just some of it's out. It, you know, conditional pass, conditional fail, and then fail. So the, the way we used to do things uh, prior to the new G8 is you just say, hey, if it's out, if it's more than 2% or you have the discussion with the customer, if it's more than this, it's out. 
we say fail or you or you report the PFA and say you just give a pass and you report the PFA and you let the and then the customer says, hey, I can live with a five percent, you know, PFA. I can live with that. But you have the discussion. So that's all changed now. It's all uh, it's all over the place and different labs are doing different things and uh, there's no rhyme or reason. And then how do they calculate the TUR? That's, you know, Greg and Travis. That's one we're on always on. Like, what is that formula? Well, ANSI Z540.3. Uh, has the formula it's it's a it's a pretty simple and pretty good formula and they have a definition of the handbook of that formula and i'd urge everybody to read it i like g8 also has a de- definition of that but those are the only two standards i believe where that formula where that formula is uh defined you are isn't in the vim do i uh, understand is not in the vim um, am i understanding it correctly that the the controversy there is whether or not resolution is added in some people that now you're getting into dimensional and some ISO standards where they added oh, okay. a new term for all of us. And that term is test test value uncertainty. So oh, now nice. we have a, a, a an additional term where standards are being written. Uh, Greg had a great example uh, where, you know, somebody has somebody can read has a great thread gauge um system that can read one micro inch but the best standard uh the best the, the uncertainty of the best standard to calibrate that device is 20 micro inches i think i got that right uh, pretty close it was 30 so oh, 30 the, okay yeah it was 30 <laughs> so so they were rejecting stuff that was out by one micro inch but the uncertainty of the machine at best was 30 or 35 micro inches i'm like well, you, you can't be but yeah, you, yeah. I said you can't reject it if it's one micro inch out because your uncertainty is 30, 35 micro inches. Well, right. yeah, but it, but it's out by one micro inch. No, you you might be able to resolve that, but your uncertainty is this big, and uh, that that took some convincing. Yeah, you know, kind of yeah. weird. It's weird that that takes convincing. Yeah. Simple math takes convincing. I often say we lost a bid one time. The bid had, it said uh, they wanted an accuracy specification of better than 0.2%. And the vendor that we lost to was double that. And it's like, they're doing your cow. They have double what you're claiming and they're doing your cow. And that's okay. How is that? I can't make O2. Um, I can't certify a device to O2 when the best I can do is O4. How do you do that? How do you make that math work? So, yeah, right. I can make other math work. You know, I can, I can take a drop of water and put another drop of water. And in the end, if I drop it on the same drop, I still have one drop of water and do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do the other stuff, but <laughs> yeah, you still have one drop of water. Yeah. So do you, do you guys think that these labs are just ignoring this and they know and they're, just trying to get by or do you think that there is just large ignorance large ignorance large ignorance large ignorance a lot of people are getting into calibration the barrier to entry let's be realistic any anymore the barrier to entry is is pretty low um you know to get some equipment and depending what you want to get into and how you want to do it uh the barrier to entry is quite high if you want to do it right uh, however, if, you know, so many manufacturers out there making products, you can go buy them and all of a sudden you're set up and you can say, Hey, we're good. Um, by the way, Henry, I, when I was listening to the last podcast, you mentioned, and this is so true. The quality of people that you find now that are, that are metrologists, I mean, it's dwindling. It's dwindling oh, yeah. very, very fast. And the only choice that I've seen, um, 
whether it's Northrop Grumman or, you know, even an IndieSoft now is, and when I interact with customers is they have a seasoned metrologist, they're taking technicians that they find that they think have aptitude and promise and they're training them to be metrologists because they're just not coming out of industry anymore. They're, Maybe they're through not. our program. Yeah, we, we have a lot that are taking non-technical hires that are really quality employees and tra training them with our school to be mm -hmm. calibrators. And it's been very successful. You know, if you have a good employee, you know, and they can generally handle getting through that school, maybe our school, then they'll, they'll succeed. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's that really growth for, yeah. Business. Sorry, Travis, you cut out. What, what was that? I, that really, the whole conversation there from Greg, it really underscores the need for, for more people like your, your business. Absolutely. Yeah. We were not paid for this advertisement, by the way. <laughs> no, but, but it is. If you have, so you look for, like, we have core values. We try to go everything. And, and one of them is, is pursue growth and learning, right? And if you have people that have that core value, they're worth investing in to get for the metrology. They're in short supply. Butler College in Pennsylvania, supposedly their graduating class, they all get scooped up. Uh, you know, we used to have the armed forces, Greg's product of the Marines and, and Ryan, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have people in our organization that we're in uh, Army. We have Army, Marines, and Navy. Uh, we don't have a Air Force, but we do a lot of work with the Air Force. And they still do train, but they're not putting out the numbers that they used to. Nope. It's nowhere near what was happening, you know, years and years ago. And and the people that are there are retiring. You know, they're at the age that they're that they've been there for thirty years or whatever. They're they're going. And you well, know what? I've I, said, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say when I I can speak exactly to what Henry is saying because as I w I left the Marine Corps as an instructor in the schoolhouse, and it's just as time has gone on, the GI Bill is so strong these days, and and people end up going on to other things because not just are we not producing the calibrators and the cal you know in the in the military anymore at the same rate it's also horribly boring in a lot of cases uh, you know some of these guys don't have a good time in their four or five years in the marine corps or, or navy and they don't want to stay in it for the industry even though you know you'll find in the civilian community it's a much more enjoyable job <laughs> right and I, and I just wanted to to add too um i think that myself, Henry, um, Travis, we're all part of this problem, whether we uh, admit it or not. The advantage that I think we've had uh, being in the calibration business as long as we've been is the fact that we've been on the ground level when there weren't fancy software packages to do these calculations. You had to do everything by hand. You had to figure it out. How I learned a lot of things uh, I, I still remember doing flow measurements on a Bell Prover and all the calculations that you had to do for that was just heinous at the time that I ended up writing a, um, a program for my HP calculator to do that. And then I'm like, well, why am I doing this? I could write a computer program to do that. So I did. And then it was, well, you know, I could take the next step and I could automate this stuff and it could take all the readings for me and do all the math and I just have to adjust the airflow. And the problem with that is it's great because now you have consistency in your measurement process. But the bad part is I, I was very valuable because I learned all those skills. I knew what made the machine tick. Mm -hmm. The people coming in behind me know how to set up the computer and press a button. And right. unfortunately, yeah. that's, that's, that is a problem. We spoke about, I, a lot about that at our company too. Like that's the, 
there, there is no free lunch. That is the downside of automating all these calibrations mm -hmm. is that the technicians don't get that basic core understanding. You're exactly right, Greg. How do you fix that? Oh, oh you know, what's funny, Greg, what I've seen that, that kind of reinforces what you're saying is that I'll have a lot of people that I have to break out of the, the thought process of, well, I appreciate everything you taught me. Can you teach me how to do this one particular thing? And it's like, I, we did. This, we taught you the science behind it. Well, right. no, well, what's the one button I press? What's this? No, that's not understanding calibration. You know, we don't, as a school, it's important to understand, and it comes into the uncertainty stuff too, because you need to understand what causes those uncertainties. What are you doing that is causing these problems? And a lot of these technicians that have been in the field for a bit, but never got any formal instruction are saying like, well, okay, this is great, but will you teach me how to do this specific item, this specific item? It's like, we, we did. You need to know all of these considerations, find your proper standard, know how to use it, and then proceed with your calibration, use your procedures, so on and so forth. But I think that's exactly what we're seeing is that they are trained to do either a very simple button press, like you're saying, or they're being task trained. Hey, look, you just keep cranking this torque thing until it snaps, then you reset it up. Just, you know, there's not any understanding behind what they're doing. Right. And Ryan, I've got, a, I've got a great example for that. I was doing cal failures when I was at Edison and I was doing an SR1010 uh, box. Um, for our listeners that don't know what that is, it is a, um, uh, very high accurate resistance standard and you it has 1k value resistors that you measure individually and you could gang them together all the way to uh, make it 10k so the technician we had software for this all you had to do was hook it up uh, make the measurement the uh, record what the reading was in this little like spreadsheet and it printed out a cal label printed out the temperature correction all that kind of stuff and it, and it gave it to you well i saw that it failed well what caught my eye when i was doing the cal failure is that every resistor individually was intolerance but when they ganged them together after they got to the third one it was out of tolerance and it was out of tolerance by an order of magnitude and then the rest of them were all out of tolerance i when I saw that, I was thinking to myself, that's, that's impossible. It, that, that can't possibly be. So I went in the lab and I checked it out. And what the technician ended up doing was he just dropped a zero on his data entry point on that one spot. And it threw everything off by an order of magnitude from that point forward. When I asked him about it, I said, didn't you, didn't you find this odd? He goes, well, that's just what the software said. He goes, it was out of tolerance. It was out of tolerance. And, but what you're saying, Ryan, is you teach them the basics of, okay, this is how you would do a resistance measurement. This is what happens when you uh, gang them together. Uh, if, I think they're in the JCM 800, I think there's an example of, well, what would the uncertainty be if you took an individual resistance measurement that was, and I'm just making the math easy, 1%. And you have the next one is 1%, but you gang them together. Well, what's the uncertainty of that? Well, it's 1%. No, actually, it's, it's, it's you know, 2% if you're just going to algebraically add it because mm -hmm. you have the uncertainty of the first one and the second one, and now you're hooking them together. But you're teaching them how to do that. You're teaching them the theory behind it. The I'm pressing this button to get this result, and this result says it's out of tolerance, so therefore it must be. But you can't teach somebody to be inquisitive. And that's really that's what point. it takes in this in this field to be very successful is to be inquisitive, to be to questions like, well, how can that possibly be? Um, 
and, and I, I saw a quote and I don't remember who is credited for, for saying it. I just remember it. It said, doubt is the beginning of science. And that's true. I mean, you look at things and it's like, I don't, I don't believe that. I'm going to go check this out for myself. Um, right. I mean, and that's what we do in our industry. Um, at least I'm sure that's, that's what, you know, myself and, and Travis and Henry certainly do. I mean, we question everything. Well, and that's what the people that stick around for a long time and end up loving this profession are the ones that are the inquisitive type or what, you know, wanting to the perfectionist. Some people say the OCD, the OCD minded people. <laughs> right. I, I, I feel like I fall into <laughs> that sometimes. Oh, you, yeah. know what's, you, you know what's funny, Henry, you mentioned uh, guard banding and, and uh, uh, radios and, and, and stuff like that. I got I to gotta point out a funny story. So this amplifier that's sitting behind me, I copied the original circuit from Ken Fisher. Uh, it was a train wreck amp. Well, Ken Fisher was obsessive compulsive with regard to simplistic stuff. He, if, it didn't, if, if it didn't need a component, he wasn't putting it in there. Well, I built the amp originally exactly as he, as he um, designed it. And when I turned it on, I had all kind of noise. And most importantly, I started picking up radio interference. Ah. Like, what <laughs> is going on with this thing? So I started digging around I'm like, oh, there's no grid stopper resistor across the input to the first tube. So I ended up putting a 68K resistor to cut out all the radio interference. That's I had to put funny. my own guard banding in it. Ah, there you go. You're star banding everywhere. Practical applications. Every day. Yep. So, 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 Travis, yeah, Travis, I'm, I would challenge anybody to find a definition of test uncertainty ratio outside of, uh, outside two. of those two documents. It is mentioned in JCM 106, but not defined. Um, so it's mentioned a lot of places, but the, I've only found two definitions in, and it's, uh, the ANSI Z540.3, um, and handbook as well as, uh, as well as the new ILAC G8 does define it, but the, the handbook, uh, defines it a bit better and it defines the formula a bit better on what goes in the, the denominator. So that's, uh, for those that wanting to know more, that standard is still very good. Um, and that uh, it's a span of the UUT tolerance divided by two times whatever K is at 95% times the calibration process uncertainty. Yeah. And people say, what's the calibration process uncertainty? Well, Z540.3 calls it the calibration process measurement uncertainty and then shortens it to just CPU later. Uh, but if that's your measurement uncertainty that we're talking about is so critical to calculate correctly, uh, where you look at like your ILAC uh, P14 and the other ones that say short-term contributors. And then we get into the argument on whether resolution involved is involved in that, what else is involved in that. And I think all everybody everywhere can agree that the, uh, the uncertainty of whatever the standard used for the calibration goes into that. So you, the simplest rule for anybody listening is your lab can never be better than who you're having perform the calibration for you, the equipment that they used and what they report on the certificate. So if they report a value of 0.02, you cannot be better than 02. Nope. Never, ever. Math cannot work that. It does not work that way. You probably learned that in, in first grade. So, you know, that's <laughs> where we go back and we say, hey, one, uh, you know, 0.02, it cannot be less. 
cannot be less than that. And then it's what goes in there and what do we build upon that? Do we put the, what, what other contributors, you know, environmental impacts, the, um, you know, the uh, resolution and, and that. And that's where you get into the debate in the metrology community. And, and that's where you get these other terms like test value uncertainty and these other stuff popping up um, where they ha they've, they've redefined things. Or you get people that, that have frankly argue that say the resolution of the unit under test should not be in there. Um, which is, I, I'm one that thinks it needs to be in there because it's referenced short-term contributors referenced in ILAC P14, and it's clearly defined in ANSI C540.3 as part of the den den denominator, which we've we've said on previous podcasts. But that's, that's well, Greg, this. is there is there math? I mean, is there math that makes sense that to back up what Henry's talking about? I mean, oh, adding in that resolution, I mean, is it a, just a, a cut and dry argument or is there anything to the other side? Oh, no, that, that that's actually great because I, I was looking for a segue to use this. So I, I think I sent the uh, uh, example to Henry in a, in a previous email thread. If you take the most accurate voltage reference on the planet, a Josephson junction that three parts per billion, you cannot get a four to one TUR if you're calibrating a, a Simpson 260 analog meter because the resolution of that Simpson is going to swamp, even though you're a million to one test accuracy ratio, million to one, you do the, T, the, 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 the TUR calculation and you end up like 2.3 to one. Let's and unpack that for a second. So, so what you're saying is the published accuracy specification of the Simpson voltmeter is too small <clears throat> when you take its resolution into account. Am I kind of going on the right track there, Greg? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and, and that I've seen happen on uh, many other instruments as well, even in modern oh, yeah. times, mostly with hard gauges. They'll, they'll specify the accuracy of that device too tightly and it ties everybody's hands. I mean, everybody in the, in the calibration industry, when you take the resolution of that measurement device into account you can't get a good test uncertainty ratio you, you know what the you know what the minimum um resolution is on the 260 on the 10 volt scale 0.2 volts that's, that's the resolution the, uh, and remember this is an analog meter for those just yeah. tuning in yeah it's in all disciplines like that we can do yeah. dimensional it's there right. you know calipers yeah, yeah, yeah. micrometers it's, it's it's everywhere So that resolution is a um, minor division is it right? Is minor that, division. Mm -hmm. One minor yes. division. Yeah. So if you take that into an account with a caliper, right now, it, it just it's everywhere you go. If you take the resolution into account that manufacturers, a lot of them, there's some have a lot of metrologists on staff and others, they have no one. Someone probably said someday, hey, what did you get? Oh, I weighed that. I did a high, a low, and uh, the average is, uh, oh, let's call that our spec. You know, I, I can see that discussion with a bunch of people, you know, and we deal with it all the time where you're trying to set the customer expectation. They go, hey, I went to this website, bought this. It says it's the spec is this. That's how good I want it to be. That's what I expect my accuracy to see to be the right. exact same as that specification. And, and I just want to, some days I want to say, you know what, I, I think they achieved that once and never repeated it. And that's one of the things achieve once, never repeat it because I put, uh, we put it in our machine. I certainly don't see anything near close to that. And uh, you know, we're using primary standards. Right. So, you know, it, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy to me. And well, it's, 
part of this problem is you don't, the manufacturers don't have metrologists on staff. So they're making product and I don't know how they're specking. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm going to keep the name of this company out uh, for obvious reasons after I say this, but I was approached by uh, a company and they gave me the exact same spiel that their sister company gave me about wanting a metrologist. And at this point in time, I already knew what questions to ask. So I asked about what kind of data, uh, what kind of reference standards do you have? What kind of data systems do you have? Do you have check standards? Now they're a manufacturer. I said, do you have um, SPC processes along the manufacturing uh, um, line? And the answer was to all of the, oh, and I, I asked, am I going to have access to resources? Am I going to have access to staff to be able to pull this job off? And the answer was, well, we're, we're getting there. And I asked the question, I said, okay, if you have none of these processes in place, how do you know that you have a bad product at the end of the day? They said, well, we have a bad product at the end of the day when all these pieces don't fit together. I go, you do realize that it gets way more expensive fixing it once you're building it than it does keeping tabs on it during the manufacturing process. Cost of poor quality, one of the best oh words that everybody oh. should learn. Absolutely. Cost yep. of poor quality. Yep. It was just it was just amazing to me that they were and they still build product that they build product in that fashion. I'm like, wow, there's no way I could work for this company. I, I would go absolutely nuts. Well, but yeah, they're, they're, they're out there. There's a lot. And it's always and yeah. At least they were saying they want they want to get there. I mean, continuous improvement yeah. is something that everybody and 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 the other thread, but we were pulling on a little bit is automation, and and we're going to see a lot of that uh, that coming up because money's cheap, borrowing's cheap, and anything I anytime I attend anything, it's like everybody is looking to replace their workforce with robots, and robots are cheap, grants are out there, so hmm. I would not be surprised if we even get a lot of these cows that uh, are done by hand on test benches and stuff. I'm, I would not be surprised if, if we start seeing, you know, this, this automated and, and, and robots doing a, a lot of what people are doing for the ones that can be done. Right. And for the people that want just stickers, that will be very attractive to them too. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of those. You yeah. still have to ship it, but uh, yeah, still have to ship and unpack, but yeah, it's, that's a whole nother ordeal because i've just that that's a shipping instrumentation has just become people used to take care of products when you when you ship them and uh uh it's they don't care for anything there's so many things show up beat up uh carriers all, all this we've seen so many shipping damages lately that uh, for the listeners out there i'd encourage everybody we're, we're starting now to like double box and do stuff it's just it's just None unacceptable anymore the way way things are handled so really get those pelican and storm cases whatever you get get the hard foam and ship your equipment and things that are that you have the highest probability because risk is on every single level of your organization mm -hmm. right it's not just on calibration it's it's transport it's all of it so invest in cases invest in shipping containers because they beat them we had a customer uh, recently that uh, said, uh, we don't know what's in this container. And we saw the pictures and we were like, holy cow, the rollers off of the belt. Actually, someone, I guess the container opened and they put two of the rollers back in it from their from their belt. 
from (laughs) (laughs) we have pictures to back it up it's like how do you how do you put how does the employee not know that that those rollers belong on the it's bad enough that they the box popped open on their conveyor belt because it probably broke the belt probably broke they probably had a mishap and they just put all the rope they put everything in there and they ended up sending two rollers to a customer You know what? Um, this is a good segue for that. So talk about shipping and how how it's important. And you don't know if it, if anything got open or damaged or dropped or whatever. Um, this is something I, I I failed to share earlier. So the big thing right now is the COVID vaccines and are are we getting the vaccines delivered to where they need to be delivered at a timely fashion? Um, is the shipment still good? Way back when I worked at Edison. We were on a pilot program. The pilot program we were on was with a company called SenseAware. SenseAware are the is the company that makes the actual GPS modules that track where the package is, what the temperature is, is it, it, it what the humidity is, has it received any type of a shock? Now, if you don't think that there's a value of that. The reason that this company came into existence was because pharmaceuticals were losing billions of dollars in lost shipments that ended up being in warehouses or some freight building or some shipping container someplace where they didn't know where it was, the the lot was spoiled. Now with with these things, they were able to track where their packages were, what the highest temperature it was exposed to. It was it was amazing. Now, when we were testing them, we came, we came across some really interesting um, problems that the company has since solved. One of the problems was when we tested them in environmental chambers, we put them in, we wired them up, et cetera. The problem was they had to have the GPS um, be able to disconnect itself. When they was in the environmental chamber, it was not receiving a signal. Therefore, it was looking for a signal, so it was self-generating heat. So because it was self-generating heat, mm-hmm. we were getting the wrong values off. All these instruments were out of tolerance. We, we couldn't believe that they were all out of tolerance, so we started testing them in smaller and smaller batches until we got to the point and figured out, I see, they're self-heating. That's that's why these are um, that that's why these are um, failing is because they're 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 self-heating and they had to turn the gps off so once they were able to turn the gps off via software via the uh, calibration mode that solved the self-heating problem but uh, again a huge huge dollar savings and a benefit to being able to put these in and, and knowing you know if your product has been exposed to overheat or or shock Still interesting. So, so replicating use. So you're calibrating them. You have to turn the sensors off to calibrate them. But when, when they're actually getting the data, they need the sensors on to get the data. Yeah, but here's the problem. So the problem was when the sensors are in the box, it's a box with oh, a gotcha. sensor. When gotcha. we're calibrating, we had them all like lined up in bins. So oh, they were so the so, thermal, yeah, mm-hmm. the thermal of, of multi units. Okay, yep. got it, got it. Yep. So, yep. so yep. there's still going to be some a little bit of error from the sensor, but your box yep. has a lot of a lot of volume, and uh, exactly, therefore it's and it's I, minimum. I'll propose uh, a segue to a topic there um, with consideration of our moderator Ryan, <laughs> hmm. separating the calibration process too far from the way that the instrument is used. My favorite topic of the day. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what, yeah, go ahead. I see a lot of calibrations that do that. Let me yeah, use and, infrared, infrared um, 
I call them guns. Maybe we shouldn't call them guns. The infrared temperature um, measurement devices. They look like sure. little guns. You, you point and yep. click and it takes the measurement of the device. And this is a pretty good topic for right now because uh, all of the entrances to major buildings are doing this, either with imagers mm -hmm. or the handheld devices that I'm referring to. And they're measuring temperature of people's foreheads using a um, infrared measurement device. When those get calibrated, we control the environment, you, you know, you have the black body source, it's calibrated to a very fine degree. You usually are supposed to have an enclosure so that you can, you, you, um, can isolate it from outside influences of uh, other infrared emitting devices in the area. And you're really calibrating them to the gnat's hair. You put them in the hands of the user, they point them at everything and they think the measurement is golden. If it says 100.2, it's 100.2. Well, it's absolutely right. wrong. You're not controlling the measurement uh, environment. Is that the right way? The, the measurement process that the user has. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is this is my this is where I think the accreditation bodies and all the standards and everybody else in the world is exactly wrong because a lot of them do not talk about replicating use and the things that make the biggest differences. They talk about, hey, have you dotted all your eyes? Have you you talk to your customer. Have you done this? Here's your process for calibration. You put it in this black box here, as Travis said. Are you doing that? Have you quantified, you know, your error in the box and everything else? And then somebody goes and uses it at whatever temperature, mm -hmm. in whatever mm -hmm. environment. It's uh, it's it's kind of like. And I wish I remembered the bridge. There was a there was a famous bridge, and I, I'm, I'm kicking myself for not remembering it. Oh, the Washington. Someone's, yeah, someone saw this bridge and said. That's an awesome bridge. I'm going to build that elsewhere. And they built it elsewhere and the bridge failed because the wind at the place right. that they built it, they did not account for the place that where it was in use, not the same environmental conditions. And the wind, the 40 mile per hour plus gust of wind just destroyed the thing because they, it was put in sheer. The mechanical mm -hmm. resonance. Right. Yeah, 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 when mechanical resonance. Yep. The yeah. resonance and oscillate just destroyed it. So, um, yeah. And uh, that's it's the same thing. It's the same general concept of you're going to the nth degree, dotting all your eyes. You're being you're being picked on by not picked on, but you're being audited by accreditation bodies. And yet they're not. And then the end user is using this. That my favorite example in our world mm -hmm. is aircraft skills because we were held to the fire on this, and I'm still pissed off about it. Um, <laughs> I it's, thought I was sorry. Yeah, no, I'm still because the the manufacturer said, oh, their equipment's not flat enough. I mean, we have machine tolerance flatness, and then they, they're talking about granite plates and, and marble, marble granite, or uh, yeah, they're talking about granite plates for flatness. The thing is used to weigh an airplane on uneven concrete. On the right. tarmac. Right? <laughs> right, on the tarmac. If I need to be that flat to calibrate it, there's something is wrong with my with the manufacturer at this point. There, you've separated the use yeah. from the calibration mm -hmm. too far. Yeah, way too right. far is introducing right. too much risk into the calibration at the end of the day is what we're saying right yeah, because we're not we're not we're not anywhere near replicating concrete by having a, a, a machine even a machine a machine versus granite you we we know if we get there's a lot of difference there but if if it can't calibrate because of a, a very well machine flat surface and you need granite if you can't get spec that way and then you go spec to put it out and you're saying our spec is going to meet when you're actually weighing the aircraft that's insanity to me 
And it's exactly what you're talking about here, Travis, is it's, it, there needs to be more discussion and contract review and understanding how people are using the equipment. Yeah. Uh, yep. There you go. It's different if we're dealing, some electronics are different, right? Because then we're dealing with test leads and some other things, but there are not as many boxes to check as like, you know, when you're dealing with things where the environmental impact is, is huge, such as force applications, torque applications, uh, and some of the other things that, that, that you guys, uh, other parameters that you guys have seen. Uh, yeah, I think torque yeah. is another really good example of that. You, you, you take all of the variability out of the torque, you you apply it on a mechanical actuator and then you put it in the hands of an operator who could be holding it anywhere. Yeah, they don't go, right. some people right. do train it and then they, and then a click type wrench is even worse because, you know, I, I know so many people, did it click? I'll click it again just to make sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Two or three. Two or three is good. And what is that? That's like a 10%. That's at least a 10% over. And then if you elongate the fat, fortunately with torque, uh, people are still pretty much in the stone ages of uh, let's over design because we can't afford to have a failure. Uh, yeah. You know, so yeah, the designers kind of saving our butts. They're saving the metrology. Yeah. But if somebody got really like, oh, I, this could be this light. I mean, you think about how many millions upon millions of dollars are spent on fasteners just because they over design it design it uh you know uh based on and then you get the 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 bolts and like your your bugattis and all that stuff where the bolts are a thousand dollars uh the nuts and bolts are a thousand dollars a piece because they want the weight to be you know so light that they're using titanium and whatnot so so you run you do run the full spectrum on this whole thing um however if you over tighten that it you have a potential that things can fail and when those things fail when you elongate that uh, bolt too far and it snaps nothing ever good comes out of that and when you when you under torque it it, they become loose and i think we kind of touched on it some of these wrenches that are mechanical have all this potential energy you know have all this energy stored up and then when they click they actually come backwards and they start loosening the nut and people call that back torque and for those out there doing torque measurements look for impact free wrenches because if you don't have an impact free wrench chances are when you think you're applying 30 newton meters you're only applying 20 to 23 newton meters or if we want to be you know u.s customary we'll say uh we'll say pound feet you know 23 pound feet do you think you're doing 30 30 pound feet uh, and you're only applying 23 but in, in any case if if it do, if it is not impact free all that energy does come back and it it does loosen it, it will loosen your fastener Oh, and by the way, I just want to add on, on to that. Um, one of the manufacturing facilities I worked at, we had a problem with torque wrenches and the problem was adjustable torque wrenches. So the, the short fix was to get rid of all the adjustable torque wrenches because in the build process, they only used a couple of very specific um, pound feet uh, wrenches. So what I did is I got rid of the uh, adjustable ones, got the uh, single brake type ones uh, installed in, in the shop instead, and put a kiosk in there that that they could check the wrench to make sure that they were getting the torque that they thought they were getting. And if not, they could return the wrench at that time. So yes, we calibrated the wrenches and we also calibrated the little torque kiosk, but it was an extra measure to get well, rid of it. I love it. Yeah. I love Make the kiosk because game. that replicates the, that tells the operator how I need to behave mm -hmm. to, to actually fasten what I need to fasten. Right. right? The operator can kind of self calibrate themselves on that kiosk. Well, this is how I use the wrench. I'm taking the wrong grip and it's showing crap. 
right? And, and, then and they, I was watching that. So what I did um, prior to this is I had a couple of operators that were having manufacturing uh, defects come in the lab. And I said, okay, show me how you're, you're fastening these. So they went and they showed me how they were fastening them. And one of the things that they uh, did was we were calibrating a torque wrench. And obviously the torque wrench was, it just had a small head on it. And, you know, we, we did it at point of impact. They were putting four, six inch extenders on and putting them overhead and doing one of these numbers. Ah. And I'm like, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> um, right. And they don't realize it till you walk right. in the door. You, like you said, this is this is where the knowledge base drops because we we go twenty years into the future, everything's automated or what or whatnot. Where is that knowledge base? You know, people right. are going to make somebody's going to spin up a business and do stupid things, mm -hmm. right? And it's going to impact the industry, and then we're going to have a failure, and hopefully we don't have a loss of life. But Travis's industry, back to Travis's industry, I mean, they're that's so critical. I mean, you right. just can't have it. I mean, why are these titanium, you know, right now the Boeing, why are those titanium uh, blades breaking? You know, this is, you know, in the engine. Why? What's what's going on there? What's wrong with the material? Is it not tested properly? Yeah, you yeah. know, I kind of like flying on, on airplanes and being safe with them. I mean, I think that's uh, definitely yeah, something you, yeah. yeah. That's generally our goal is to get you back down out of the sky mm -hmm. in a safe manner. And I appreciate that. Good. Yeah, we all do. But what happens? <laughs> what happens when they stop? What happens when conditions are are loosened or you know industry general? It's like, hey, we've had we've had prolonged success now for fifteen years. We can loosen loosen the reins. What happens then? That's when that's when all the buildup happens. That's when people start taking shortcuts. That's when that's when all of this is like gets started. And by the time then you start having failure after failure after failure after failure. I mean, look at the yeah. DC ten. This is a this is a really cool thing. The the design of it, right? Just from the maintenance that one that one one place that you uh, loosen right one place you loosen the bolt took the whole engine off and just the wear patterns that they didn't the design engineers didn't figure and how long mm -hmm. did it take for that to, to for that to pop up and people will say wow we have a we have a pretty 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 significant design flaw so mm -hmm. that circles back the conversation to just the risk of your general industry right yep. that's that's what puts the passion behind my uh, statements and publications and speeches and pound, stump pounding and all that is that th this isn't an idle threat, right? We're trying to really right. keep people alive here. Uh, yeah, there oh. is an impact that I think some people, I don't, I, I don't think they're ignoring it. Like, I don't think it's just people are generally ignoring risks that are out there, but I think they're just not paying attention to it. Or maybe they haven't been trained to think in that mindset of, you know, what am I doing here that is adding bad things to this process for the customer? I think that's the mindset. I think someone said it, you know, getting the mindset in the right place in the industry is definitely something that's lacking. I preventative think that's what we're kind of coming down to. Statistical process, if you're in manufacturing, preventative maintenance, statistical process control, same with calibration, same with everything. Look at the BP oil disaster. I mean, that that whole thing is traced back to a, you know, a 1975 calibration sheet and where, uh, where they thought the level was uh, uh, falling when it was actually rising. 
um, you know, where the the idle truck ignited all all of everything, and it's what we're at 1.8 billion dollars for something that probably could have been solved for less than a thousand dollars. You know, yeah. <laughs> if you had the right warning and you had the calibration and you had everything else, uh, it's there's some ignorance that's involved here too. There's there's all, all other examples. There's the brain lab. There's a brain lab one where where someone miscalibrated an item and and you know uh, over overdosed a bunch of cancer cancer patients uh and then someone then the right person right physicist receives training and you know it goes five years undetected the right physicist receives training calibrates it properly and says holy crap we've just Mm -hmm. done this for five years we've we've overdosed people um and there's simple ways to detect it so i think it's a cross it's really a cross um you know travis is it travis is great i'm i love that you brought this up i mean we talk more about it i mean you guys have you know that whole the whole risk thing you know probability times impact and then if you want to get really into it you then you start saying hey what's the what about detection like a lot of people hear me talk and say, you know, probability times input pack, but you also have to be able to detect it. So how, how well can you detect it? Is that a question for me to answer? That is, that is. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where to begin? So, so having a robust calibration system internally is our first line of defense. We, we pride ourselves with uh, a very fine uh, internal calibration lab facilities personnel all the way from the technicians to the managers who who are diligent how do you how do you get those we we talked earlier about personnel and how do do you find good raw material that you can train that have a good solid head on their shoulders that will see something and say something that sounds cliche i know Um, but but that's exactly it and that that challenge is one that our company has uh, raised its level to now, the other thing is we, okay, so we can control our own calibrations. And if it was just that, I'd be fine and happy to keep my head down and keep my hands busy. But the problem is the outside calibrations where they don't always understand the impact of the calibrations that they're providing to a high-risk business, a loss-of-life business. And that's where the passion starts within me is that um, it's, we, we mentioned earlier, it does seem to be an ignorance. Of, of just, you know, the, the general industry, why do I do what I do? Who does it impact? And, and it's ignorance, but I think it's also combined with a little bit of arrogance. You know, I've, I've always mm-hmm. done this. I know what I'm doing. Just take your instrument. Here's your CalCert, Travis, and um, just put it into service. And right. when I try to raise objectives, this is that, this is that next level. So how do I uh, protect our company? It's the calibrations that come in. We review those calibration certificates. And when I've worked with companies, I find a lot of them are ignorant and not willing to change. And that's really unfortunate. That's where I start to get, you know, really worked up where, no, you're not understanding. You're not listening to me. You, you need to understand this and you're refusing to. Uh, and that, okay, so I don't know if this was announced on the last one, but that's, I, I changed industries here just um, a month or so ago. I'm, I'm out of metrology now. And I'm in test engineering where we design and sustain the test solutions at Collins Aerospace. I, I jumped out for many reasons, but this was one of them. I, we couldn't, I, I couldn't be the lone voice in this anymore for my company. And it was literally causing way too much stress in my life. I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> there, there's bad calibrations happening. We're doing our best to prevent them, but 
it's just a wall of water coming at us and it's a waterfall and it has to stop. And I, I, I love that Ryan and you uh, and your school are, are raising your hand and saying, hey, how can we help? How can we train up better technicians? How can we provide better calibrations? Henry, the same with you. Greg, I know you're still a vocal um, spokesperson for good calibrations, right? So oh, absolutely. This, uh, this room is full of the right people. Um, but it is unfortunate that the, the industry I saw was headed in a, a really bad direction. And, uh, well, anyway, I've, I've kind of had a, a long, I know, I know your checklist is no, trace checklist was, do they have traceable to NIST on their cert? That was number one. Have they defined <laughs> the units improperly such as foot pound? No one says meter Newton. That's number two. Uh, what else is there? Have they, uh, have, do they have some misspelling, some grammar mistakes on there as well? Uh, do they define uh, their, their criteria for acceptance as simple acceptance? And, and we need to make sure they don't say, the measurement uncertainty, right? Did I, did yeah. I grasp the what what the the all the requirements are? Yeah, and, and throw that silly ILAC MRA. Right. No traceability. So yeah, these are all peeves. I think we all have, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, still people are still saying traceable to NIST. Uh, it's it's yeah. so wrong. It's wrong. But it's, you know, that, that list that you just rattled off yeah. there, Henry. If that yeah. was it, I, I can tolerate that. It's just yeah. the fact that. There's bad calibrations happening and, and people are just continuing to do it and are okay with doing it. Um, oh, yeah. Your instrument's in. Well, how, how was that be... in? It's missing a piece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's missing a piece. It's, it's, it's literally it's, broken. You can't read it. <laughs> it's a dial gauge and the, and the, and the, uh, and the, and the, uh, the pointer's gone. How, how's that in again? <laughs> oh my God, Henry! Henry it, it, uh, this this is this is just too true. When I was working at, at Edison, I, I I got a quote to calibrate a 540B. For anybody that doesn't know what that is, it's an AC thermal transfer standard that was a predecessor to the Fluke 792, which the 5790 is the. Um, uh, the the uh, next the step from yeah from from the 792. So anyway, the 540B was a real beast. I didn't want to do it. I quoted it at an outrageous price. It showed up in my lab anyway. So when it showed up oh, in my yeah. lab, <laughs> it shows up in my lab. It doesn't have a, a, a transfer switch. It's just it's missing. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get a, get this part ordered. And I, I, you know, customers say, yeah, whatever it takes. They ended up calling me up and said, so how much longer do you think that's going to take? Because, you know, we've been using that to calibrate stuff with. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, how, how, how are you using it without a transfer switch? Because that's the prime, that's the prime um, component of how you make, you use it. And it was gone. And uh, right. but, yeah, yeah, they had mentioned that we need it back because we've been using it for calibrations and our calibration work is stacking up. My, yeah. yeah. And my, my favorite one I heard, I had, I had a guy that came into one of our classes and he was, he was quite, um, he was concerned with this. And I, I, and I, I said, this is interesting. So the other one that I heard about, and he told me the story, he said, we have customers that they'll, their equipment is generally out of calibration. Right. So he said these same customers, they get something that's out of calibration. We'll ask him then to say, will you do another cal the next day after you made your adjustments 
and recalibrate it again after you've just adjusted it and send me that cert. <laughs> I'm like, wow, 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 wow. Cause they don't want to deal with an out of tolerance condition. Right. And that's, I mean, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. some people in industry that are, that are doing, I mean, cause really if you get an audit, oh, I that out never two. happened. Here's our, here's our in, you know, it's, we're just uh, a small slice of the cross section of all the stories in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. I've done I did a, almost yeah. two years of on sites as a manager level. So I was smart by then. And the things that I was asked to do by customers is a little bit insane. Yeah. And we're at the higher level labs. Like, you know, we're primary standards. You know, Greg's a lot of people that, you know, Greg's worked for some great companies in, in that mix. Those are all higher level. Like when we start digging down deeper and we're seeing it at our level. And I always I'm always complaining. I, I'm uh, uh, 100% with Travis because if we're seeing it up here. Man, oh, yeah. down there, it doesn't get any better. It's not like if, if we're at the top of this pyramid here and mm-hmm. we're seeing these problems, point. you right. better believe that they're, they're amplified and, and, and they're there. And somebody's going to get in a car or something and they're going to fail. I mean, you, you could see in the 2006 that we had all these brake recalls from torques and everything else. But you can see it at times that it, it does make its way in. And if people can connect the dots... It's usually related to somewhere in metrology. There are there are bad engineer there are bad engineering practices and and you know design flaws. But why they should be tested and the metrology right. part of things tests this. If, if who cares if an engineer makes a bad part, you know they're they're problem solvers, right? That's their design. I mean they don't nail it all all the time. There's a lot of trial and error stuff that still goes on in there. Um, you know when you're prototyping and developing, but it's up to the metrology community to to solve and make sure it's safe whatever those right. designs are. And uh, when that fails, that's a problem. And I think you see that mm-hmm. on several levels. If you watch the news enough and you see cranes being blown down, airplanes crashing and all the other stuff, I think you see some of that stuff that can be can be traced back, bridges failing. You, you can trace this back to metrology. Mm-hmm. Sure. Now, uh, keeping a, an eye on the time in, in this last... Because a listener, if they've stuck with us to this point, they've been through quite a few hours of talk about this problem. So maybe we should give them some air and, and some possible solutions. I know on my end, um, you know, so for maybe the last 15 minutes, we can talk about some of the things that we can do to try and fix things in our own little world. I know for myself, I wrote down some notes as we've been talking. I, I think there's a strong need in the school for uh, not just calibration side, but also support jobs. So I think that's something I'm going to work on, on you know, on our end. You know, people that are doing shipping and and those things. All of this stuff should be taught in some way. And I know there's places that people just get, you know, a quick rundown of, hey, yeah, you throw the equipment in here, put all this packing stuff in, and you send it out. You know, uh, when we look at the big picture, and just to kind of prime you guys for some answers. We're speaking to technicians that possibly could uh, know or feel that something is wrong. What can they do? Managers that may completely understand they're doing something wrong. Um, what can they do? And then anyone bigger level, I, I, I guess, and then possibly customers, you know, customers of calibration, obviously doing your research on who your provider is is important. What are some of the things they can do? So with that being said, um, I, I I don't know, 
Greg, do, can I pick on you since you weren't here last time? Because uh, I know we did talk about some of the solutions last time. But I think we, at this point, with how much we've talked about it, I think we're now getting a, the, the listener has a very good picture of what the problem is. What are some things we can do? Uh, fire customers that uh, don't want to play games. Yeah. Play, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, of course. Um, the, the biggest problem that I've had in the past was I did raise problems. I did bring it to management level. Um, and I don't, when I present problems, uh, I might, I might be, um, the exception to the rule because I always bring a solution to the problem and an estimation on what it's going to take to fix the problem, how long it's going to take to fix a problem. So I don't just come out and say, Hey, this is broken. Uh, you're the manager. You need to figure out a solution. Um, when I have staff meetings, I ask my staff, well, what problems are you seeing? And they'll come up with a plethora of, of problems. I always ask for solutions because if I don't get, uh, they're the experts. There's, they're the ones that see things on a daily basis that I may not see. I mean, yes, I have a lot of experience, but things change. Um, something that might be specific to their particular task that they're doing, they're going to have intimate knowledge opposed to me because I'm the guy that's sitting in the, in the office. So I, I don't necessarily see that all the time. I really always welcome um, the employees to bring me any kind of problems that they have ideally with a solution, but there's, there's people that just bring things to the table and say, Hey, this is broken. I, I, I can live with that. But the problem that I've had is when I raise the flag and I provide a solution, I almost always get, yeah, well, that's nice, but we're not going to do that right now. So the, the big driver for all this that we've already talked about is education. You know, I, I try my best to educate the people that I'm trying to communicate with. If I'm trying to get a problem resolved, um, that's what I do. I, I try to bring it to some level where they understand. It. And if, if I'm talking to another higher level manager, I have to put it in money. I have to put it in dollars and cents. Well, this is how much it's costing you by not doing this. Let me, let me rephrase the question, okay? This is how much money we're wasting. I'll give you an example. One of the examples that uh, I did because I thought we were wasting uh, way too much time on 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 document uh, review. Travis, I know you said you had a, a stack of documents on your desk that you were reviewing. It's a daunting task. So the amount of money that we were spending was upwards to three hundred thousand dollars a year by taking three engineers that I had and having them do documentation review. So my thought was, if we had somebody that was a QA person, um, we had uh, possible candidates from Butler um, College, like, why don't we take one of these folks, pay them a decent salary and have them do the uh, reviews of that. We're, end up, we're ending up saving money. That's their job. This is what they want to do. I have metrology engineers that should be writing procedures and should be solving measurement problems, not reviewing documentation we're getting from a vendor. That's not a good use of their time. So I try to put that in how much money we're wasting by having the wrong people do the do that kind of work. I mean, could I go in the pressure lab and do pressure gauges? Yeah. Is it cost effective? Not remotely. Um, <laughs> So that's what I try to communicate. I, I, I try to know my audience and try to communicate that with them on some level of 
how they're going to perceive it. Like I said, when I talk to managers, I try to put it in dollars and cents because that's what they understand. They understand dollars and cents. They understand time. If I start telling them, you know, PFA, PFR, I need this standard because of that. Now it has to go. To, they, 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 they hear da da. They, yeah, they, they don't. They, right. They, they don't make any sense out of that. But if I, I put it done in money, they do. I think what you're saying, you just kind of gave me an awakening that a lot of times they don't see some of these problems as a fire that they need to put out. It's like, oh, we can get to that. We've always done it this way. Well, you know, there's no urgency to make a change. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I hear I hear that a lot. Well, we've been getting along so far without doing that. Well, and the only reason you've been getting along so far by doing it the wrong way is fortunately you have your product that's over-engineered because it's over-engineered. You're not seeing this problem. Mm -hmm. yep. you, people forget that being in business is a game. It's an infinite game, right? There's no finite thing to it. If you're, if you have this mindset that you're not going to continually improve and be better, you'll be one of those companies that do not make it. It will eventually mm -hmm. catch up to you. You're not, you're not reinvesting in the right equipment, the right people. Um, you know, you just, again, uh, the right equipment is so essential and, and, and Greg was on it, but I, I wanted to add to that is, is, is having the core values, right? Having employee engagement, and making sure that we're all, as a community, speaking the right term, you know, we're all agreeing on formulas and definitions. What goes into the uncertainty budget was something that was brought up, that we all agree on on, on that. Uh, when we talk about TUR, that we all agree on the definite, defi, de, those definitions. So we're all have speaking the same language and have the ability to communicate with each other so our lab is no different than another lab in terms of when we do our process and, and you know, and when the customer says, I want you, I want a TUR or they're shopping for this or that, that we're all talking that same, but that doesn't happen. That's not happening now. So part of the solution is getting everybody on the same page, dumbing this down. We don't all need to speak in jargon and, and terminology that no one else understands, even though we threw some of it, some of it around here. People like to overly complicate things to make it make it seem like they, you know, they're they're great. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, you know, using the right words. You know, it's not what you say. It's what people hear. And that's uh, uh, I, I, I read a book uh, and, and and just one only ever read one. So um, but yeah, I, I read. <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot and, and, and it's really important there. It's uh, Frank Lutz wrote, you know, um, and, and, and the, it really, what comes down to it's the book's called words at work. And it, and it, and the, it says, it's not what you say. It's what people hear. So really making sure you are clear and people, you know, some people just be like, Oh, I got it. I got it. And then you go back and you're like, what did they give me? They didn't give me this. I asked for a 15-point repeatability study, and you find out that they did something. Oh, I thought that you meant this. So it's really, really in the, your procedures, documentation, and, and really making sure that people are engaged and they understand and that they have the ability to bring problems to you and ask the right questions. Because if you have an unengaged workforce, you're going to get sloppy product. There's no, there's no ands, ifs, or buts. And Henry, let me, let me, I had, a, I had an individual and before I said anything to him, the first question I asked him is, is what do you understand this process to be? 
And they gave me a very good definition of what the process was. So the problem was not with this employee. The problem was this other manager wasn't hearing what this employee was saying. That's what the problem was because the employee clearly understood the process. He understood what he was doing. Um, I didn't sit there and say, well, you're doing this wrong. I know just t tell me what you think the job is. And when he did and he explained it to me. I went to the other manager. I'm like, no, you didn't hear him right. And that's what you said. Words matter because this other manager just simply didn't hear what, you know, the employee was saying. Yes. I see that happen a lot, especially with the squeaky wheel employees, you know, the ones that are always bringing up, you know, the, the small things that are, that they notice are wrong. Right. Maybe it is an approach thing sometimes on those. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's that's what I just wanted to add with that. Yeah, 100%. Travis, did you have any any suggestions? Right. So the question on the floor is solutions. Mm -hmm. Right. I hear a, a common theme that we talked about even last time was education. Uh, you know, that's still a, mm -hmm. something that can resonate with us all. You know what? Uh, what before you continue, Travis? Sorry, the thing that really yeah. stuck out to me on that, the one thing I wanted to bring up because Greg also brought it up. I've been to numerous labs and every single one of them have training on the schedule monthly, every single one of them, zero of them were keeping up with that. So I think actually following through with training is another issue that's out there, but sorry to interrupt you on that. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to go around on, on the screen here and think, so one of Greg's things was education uh, common language or better communication. Um, Henry, you brought that up as well. Right equipment, right process, mm -hmm. right requirements. And as well as Henry, you had a, a really good point too, is commonality amongst the, uh, the calibration industries. Uh, and really that's like the goal of NCSLI. Uh, and there, mm -hmm. there might be a handful of others around the globe that I don't know of either, but that's a tricky one because <laughs> whenever you get more than two people in a room, they're going to disagree. Uh, so having at least a format uh, to come up with common processes, language uh, is, is really important. And that's what, again, NCSLI brings to the table. Um, so these are all good concepts. Uh, and then you have to get into the, well, how do we educate? What specific pieces? And uh, Brian, your audience probably remembers, we gave you a handful of documents last time to, mm -hmm. uh, to look into, read, try to absorb. Uh, even today, we talked about just getting the right people in place that will uh, engage and and uh, be curious and question and doubt and and just good, just just be good raw material to learn, to to look for places to to do more to be better. That's um, the challenge of management is to find those people. <laughs> right. The, is there a uh, challenge I, there that it, it, in the industry? The, can it change? Because I, I keep hearing, you know, a lot of this, I think does come down to some places, bottom line. And will I guess is, is that where some of the argument comes in? I, I honestly don't know where the, the specifics here are uh, a little vague to me. And, and really, again, this is why I, and one of the reasons I stepped away from calibration for a spell, maybe I'll be back. That's a threat. Uh, <laughs> come back, come back, come back, please. 
Uh, it, it's because of that disorganized uh, and even dissonance and uh, inability to agree on a common process and inability to provide good quality services across the globe was was just tearing me apart. Like, where is the unifying factor in this? Where will we find uh, a good path forward? And I, you know, I'm, I'm probably impatient too. I've been in the calibration industry since, well, I started in 98 as a Caltech and then as a metrology engineer in 2007. And I wasn't seeing um, advancement. I was actually seeing it's starting to get worse and worse and worse. Yep. And that's really unfortunate. So how do we say, okay, enough is enough. That curve has got to stop here. Now we, we need to advance again. Um, that's that's the challenge of, of you, Ryan, in your school. <laughs> uh, Henry's company and Greg's company is it's to raise that bar. Say, you know, we've got to hold people to a higher standard. You need to uh, understand what you're doing. All these reasons that we've listed, education, commonality, speaking good language, uh, just keep pounding away at it, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a magic bullet. It's going to be a combination of a lot of things. It's like any problem in life. It's complex. It's not going to be solved quickly. It's not going to be solved by one thing. So, well, yeah. And to add to that, uh, to what you're, get yourself, if you're if you're at a company, try to get yourself on the committees. Because the, the other thing that we see is the, the big manufacturers are on the committees. And the big manufacturers have a lot of great metrologists, but they also push their own agenda. Some, mm-hmm. not all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, th- so that's part of the problem. You know, they have the money, they have the people, they can fly people all over the world. They can get on the committees and they can really influence them. But that's not to say if you're, you're a lab that, you know, has 10 people that you can't get on a committee. Uh, they're, they're out there, you know, it's just, you know, maybe your participation to go all over the world is going to be less. Uh, but some of them aren't, you know, get yourself out there, get on the committee, make, make an impact, make a, make a change, you know, that way. Uh, it, it is tough. Um, it, it is really, really tough on the committees. And when you see people that are running their, uh, their own agenda and you, you're fundamentally opposed to it, that is something that, that takes a lot uh, to bear witness to. And uh, I, I know I've had my fair share of fights uh, on them where I've lost and I'm, I'm still sour. I mean, I'm not going to lie about it. I'm still sour about some of it because I think, I think the stance was, was that of uh, the, the way the, we should have gone as a, as a, as a committee and as a metrology community, but the rest of them didn't want to go there. So all I can say is if there are more people out there, like Greg, you, you know, you more people out there that want to do the right thing, put yourself on a committee. And I just, and I just want to say too, on the committee uh, issue, uh, it's not necessarily boring stuff. I've, I've recently injected myself into a committee and what we're trying to do, and this is something that's that's been sorely missed and avoided and ignored in our industry. When you search an airline flight, you want to fly to Dallas, you go to Delta Airlines or you go to Google and say, I want to get a flight to Dallas and you'll just get information about flights to Dallas. Why can't you just go to a website and say, I need my 3458A calibrated, accredited, and it pops up with laboratories that are near you, first off, can perform the accreditation. Secondly, their scope of accreditation is readable by machine language. You know what the uncertainties are going to be. And if they don't even meet that criteria, they're not going to pop up on your radar. Right. That can do mm-hmm. your calculation. Well, you, right. What- your only fault in that statement is you don't like Texas, so you should have been flying to California. 
<laughs> like California, even less. <laughs> All right. You should happen to love Texas just to go on the record. <laughs> Travis is going guy. on the record. I'm going to Texas. I'm, I'm loving Texas. I love all our states. I'm going on the record. I'm, you know, yeah, let, let, let me just clarify the <laughs> Texas thing. If we're going to get down to uh, the granular level, I didn't like the manager at the lab in Texas. Okay, well, that's that's, so you like yeah. the state's good. The state you know? was fine. Yeah. So I have I'm a to big add fan something. Of brisket. Yeah. Tra- Travis. Oh, yeah. Travis said something earlier, and I have to add to it about, uh, and I have to do it because I love it. You know, what's the? Do you know what the definition of a camel is? Camel? Yeah, camel, camel, like the animal? Yeah, like the animal. Cow with two humps. I don't know. What's the no. definition of a camel? A, a, a camel is something, it was a racehorse that was designed by a committee. Because ah. <laughs> <laughs> Travis said you get two people in a room, they don't, right. and that's what happens. But you get more oh, yeah. like minded people in the room that want good metro, you know, good metrology, good, good metrological practice, and understand these things like, you know, global, global consumer risk and understand the outcomes if we don't get these things right. And all of a sudden, you're going to have, you're going to start to have that movement and that change. We can all go out there and educate, you know. Uh, Greg works for IndieSoft, so he's, you know, a lot of labs are signing up for IndieSoft. They, they could have best, best best practices there, and they're doing some really cool things to help the industry. So it's just getting more and more people on board in in, in agreement of, hey, we're going to, maybe I don't agree on that definition, though that is what the definition is published, and we're going to follow it because that's, that's what the community uh, that's what the community published. And if you don't, if there are not enough uncertainty contributors, you want to add more, no one's going to say, no auditor's ever going to come into your facility and say, hey, oh, you've included these in your uncertainty analysis. Shame on you. You know, if it's too little is the problem. Mm-hmm. Underreporting is the problem. If you want to be more conservative, uh, torque's a big one. I always tell people, the other thing you can do to try to improve it is get, get yourself involved with good proficiency tests. Maybe not the ones that are always out there, but but if you have to bite down, send something to NIST if you really have to, or find the labs that that you can trust that have the primaries that you can say, I'm going to, I don't know what my torque, my torque is a lot more than force times, um, you know, force times um, length. It's a lot more than that. You know, we have interactions, we have misalignment, we have everything else. Let me, let me send a good torsion cell to a primary lab. And let me get it back and run my own test and see what my errors actually are. If you have, there's nothing wrong with getting the answer of what th- something should be and working it backwards, mm-hmm. you know, to, to improve your process. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And a proficiency test, a good one will reveal where the issues are in your setups and in, in, in your machines. Maybe it's your Tesla, you know, I, I don't know. I know a lot about force and torque, but some of the other ones I've heard about, there's some simple solutions out there. And if you do the proficiency test, you can find them. You can work backwards. But like knowing it. you have a problem is step number one, you know, just, just blindly calibrating instruments and sending them out the door thinking you you have the right answers and your uncertainties are correct is is not the best not the best thing right mm-hmm. yeah yeah i wish there was a it's almost like there needs to be a model lab that can be modeled after i would say we NIST, need to have but... a calibration standard for our calibration labs is that what you're saying <laughs> right yeah it's really interesting yeah. well no. that'd be mine so well, at least I, I think I, I feel like coming out. I, so 
myself coming through this whole conversation. I mean, we're talking about almost four hours worth of, of chatting about this. I feel like it's, it makes more sense to me. And so I think that can be good for our listeners. It's just hope that uh, the word can pass, you know? Yep. What? So we got, we're terminology, equipment, process, requirements, get yourself involved with a good proficiency test. Greg mentioned SPC, statistical process control, get, read some stuff by Deming and, and the other ones and, and start doing, start having quality checks or what we call put together a really good measurement assurance program so that if something does happen, you'll know, or buy the equipment, as Greg said, that's really, you know, Greg started earlier that you can, you can do these calculations. That's probably a bit more advanced than most people that are going to be, be out here. I mean, some that are listening obviously will understand it, but it does come with that. I mean, the right equipment cannot be stressed enough. The right training cannot be train, stressed train, enough. Train, train, train. Yep. Train, engagement. But I'm actually yeah, doing training, the training on bad equipment. That's good. And, and empowering your technicians. I, I'm going to say this, that I learned a lot of what I write and stuff. I learned in the first 10 years because equipment would come in and it wouldn't match what, you know, they'd send, we, we get equipment from somebody else and it wouldn't match. Right. I'd have the other CalCert always ask someone to, can you send me their CalCert with it? And like, how are we off by 0.3%? There's no way I disagree. There's no way we're off by that much. Oh, let me start playing with it. Well, what if I load against the bottom threads? What if I do this? What if I do that? And I just keep playing with it to try to get it to try to understand more and more. And then you talk, then you learn, hey, I need to talk to the customer and see how they're actually using it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking early 2000s. Now, now that's apparent. Talk to the customer first and see how they're using it. But a lot of the learning was, you know, they sent this in with the expectation of this. And you're like, well, how do I get that? What do I do? And then then you call later and say, hey, if I loaded this way, I could I could meet achieve what your expectations were. But the easiest short shortcut right now is just call them immediately on their contract review and, and ask, how are you using it? We want to replicate that use as part of our calibration as best we can. And and it sounds like, a, you know, it is also going along with that proficiency testing. If you can find a, a lab, maybe that doesn't compete directly with you, but that you can chat with and have a kind of a partnership with is not a bad idea. Kind of have a, a, a community amongst yourself with other labs that you can trust. And, and if you're having issues, see what they're doing that right. I think coming and visiting you, Henry, was really eye opening for like, and I'll, I'll make this, this real brief, um, it was interesting coming out there and, you know, you're having an issue with just like you were saying, comparing with someone else's measurements and you knew down to the, the, to the parts per million of what each component of your measurement would, would change, you know? So as I'm rattling off, well, what, I wonder if they did this and you're like, well, no, that's two parts per million. Well, what about <laughs> this? Oh, no, that's one part per million. That can't be it. You know, being that intimately familiar with your processes is not a, a bad thing either. Ryan, you're awfully nice. The, the, the truth of that was like, no, that's 0.01%. So hundred parts per million, not, <laughs> not, oh, oh. <laughs> but, but it was, it was around there. It was raw, you know, it's no, it was knowing rough numbers. Like this can't be this can't be that can't be, mm-hmm. you know, you're going through like, what could it be? Uh, did they use the wrong top of adapter? Well, the worst I've seen is 0.3. This was 1% out. Can't be that, that we're only on 0.3. And then you're trying to come up with the combination of error sources to, that would that would lead to a 1% difference between two labs. 
Um, so, and Ryan came out when I was chasing between uh, disagreement between, you know, 30 parts per million and, and you know, uh, we were chasing low numbers. And I'm like, how the hell do you, ch- I, I'm worried about chasing 0.003% and I showed him this one's off by 1%. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you need to know your processes. <laughs> But hey, I I do want to thank all of you. I mean, really for coming on and talking about this issue and at length, you know, you guys gave up a lot of time. I I do want to make sure that people listening understand that this is not obviously a a cut and and, um, a case closed thing. Obviously, if other people have something they want to add by all means, contact us at information at signcalibration.com. Let us know. You can come on and, and talk about some of the things that you've seen out there. But I, I want to thank the three of you for putting yourself out there and being willing to be a part of this first discussion. And I hope we make a difference. You know, I, I really have come to understand the problem greater. And and I, I hope the audience will as well. Did any of you want to throw out any parting shots on how they can uh, get a touch in touch with you if they have any questions for you? Uh, Travis, you want to go ahead? Oh, you want to get in touch with me? It would be not at this time.com. No, okay, fair enough. <laughs> just, just friend request him no, on so, LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's on LinkedIn. Travis Gosman. I, I am. I'm on LinkedIn. Reach out to me there. That's fine too. Um, I'm on Facebook for crying out loud too, although I kind of stepped aside from that. Uh, so just, just some parting shots, I guess. First of all, Ryan, thank sure. you so much for doing this. I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that it had some positive effect. Yeah, it's kind of cathartic for me to vent, but uh, at the end of the day, I, I got a job to do. Uh, and I thought it was valuable to take this time and sit amongst good people like uh, Henry and Craig and Ryan. So I think this maybe adds a, a good punctuation mark to the end of my chapter on metrology for now. And again, just thanks for for keeping this conversation going, Ryan, and for having these gentlemen on today. Appreciate sure, that. thanks. Well, Great. Ryan, I, I'd like to uh, thank thank you for uh, having me on as well. If anybody wants to get in contact with me, it's um, Greg Sanker C E N K E R at indiesoft.com. Um, if I can have a parting shot, I've got a uh, a really good story. I had no idea I made an impact on a person like this. So when I was working at Edison, I needed a metrologist to um, backfill a primary electrical position. And I took an employee that I thought had a lot of promise, and I uh, showed him how to work in the primary lab, how to keep the surveillance of the bolt, how to do SPC, the resistance, all that kind of stuff. Um, he, he did really well in that position. I had since moved on from the company. To this day, I, the gentleman still contacts me and tells me that I was the biggest influence of his career because I gave him guidance and I mentored him. And it meant, apparently to him, it meant the world. I had no idea I was making that impact on somebody. So I encourage everybody that's in this field, if you really truly want to make a difference, uh, be aware that, you know, you may be planting seeds of uh, a really good metrologist in the future that really genuinely wants to, to learn. I mean, I did see promise in this young man, but he had the initiative to take it even further. And I had no idea that I made the, the uh, positive impact that I made on him. So, you know, words definitely matter. And, and certainly how you treat people in this, in this field matters, because even though we all have our own opinions on how things um, 
should work. I mean, it's always respectful to, you know, listen to somebody else's uh, point of view, even though it might seem like it's foolish, but um, hear them out nonetheless. Very good. Yeah. Good point. Thanks for that, Greg. Yep. Henry, parting oh, shots. What what to say? So I think <laughs> I'm going to go to uh, Jim Collins for all the managers out there and, and speak to that directly. It's uh, There's a book called Good to Great. I highly recommend it. It talks about getting the right people in the right seats, uh, core values. But it's but it, there's a hedgehog concept that says, what are, what are you deeply passionate about? What can you be the best in the world at? And what drives your economic engine? And I, I would say I would like everybody to think about those three things when you make your decisions. Because if you're not buying the right equipment, if you're not training the right employees, if you're not doing all of those things uh, and, you, and you stray away from that, your core competence, uh, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. And with that, uh, anybody that wants to be better, our, you know, our passion is to help labs make better measurements. So if you're doing force or torque, reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, that's my preferred method. Facebook gets messy, as, as Travis said. But Henry Zumbrun, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also contact us at info at mhforce.com. That's an easier email address. And uh, yeah, happy to answer questions. There's nothing more than, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? Right now, I'm working on a 60-page guidance document for force. I, I titled it, um, but it's going to change. It says, my calibrations do not match. Uh, my calibrations results do not match what my calibration provider sent me. And I know that title is too big, but that's what started this uh, for me to write this. To let, let, me, let me dump all of the information that I know uh, that impact the measurement results. So that, that'll be out soon and it'll have a different name, probably forced calibration for uh, the quality manager, for the technician and quality manager is probably gonna be the name of it. But I like, my, I like the original title better, better because that's what Henry's, gets me uh, Henry's also working on a second <laughs> paper. He's having me review, it's titled, why am I in this handbasket and where are we going? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's it. So uh, yeah, I, I need to, I need to, I need to end that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what it is. I just entitled all those as Greg gave the story. Also, all those that can make a difference, uh, try to make that difference, join a committee, do whatever you need. So make, Great make point. your hand basket, uh, <laughs> email, email Travis, put, get him on LinkedIn, spam him to death, which, which would please <laughs> to get him back into metrology because we need him as a voice for, for, for us. So that's right. <laughs> well, awesome. thank you. Thank you all. And, uh, I, I definitely look forward to talking with, uh, amongst the, the community as, as things go forward. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you all as well in the future. Hopefully we can have uh, more podcasts with you guys on individually or as a conglomerate again as well. Sounds great, Ryan. Thanks again for having me. Yep. Thank you Thanks, so guys. much. Yeah. And don't forget to, to spam Travis to get him back into metrology. We'll see how yeah. many. <laughs> yeah, spam Travis. <laughs> we'll see if we get some feedback on that in the next month or so. If we get 100 or more, he'll come back on. Oh, my God. Good luck, Travis. 100000 or more? $100,000? <laughs> yeah, we can start a GoFundMe. Yeah. <laughs> Fun Travis. Fun Travis. Travis to metrology. Sure. Travis yeah, back to I metrology. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> and with that, we will say goodbye. Goodbye.